When you're a soldier and you grow up as a soldier, security operations, whether you're doing it in the physical world or or in cyberspace, you know, a lot of the principles are the same. And everyone in the military spoke that language of security and understood that language of security. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and on today's show, I speak with Jeff Schelling, Global CISO at Teleperformance. Jeff and I talk about how his time in the military gave him a cybersecurity leg up in the private sector the deficit of understanding and how it relates to operationalizing security, and the benefits of building strong relationships with your CIO and audit team. How do you translate your military experience of operationalizing security to the private sector? And why do some teams miss out on lessons learned from the incident management process? Is the missing ingredient a strong relationship between the CISO, the CIO, and audit team? Okay, Jeff, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, For those that don't know you, would you please introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Jeff Schilling. I'm uh, the global CISO for Teleperformance. We're a 330,000-person company in 80 countries doing business process outsourcing in 265 languages. And we also do digital transformation for companies. And I've been with the company, uh, started right before the COVID crisis kicked off. And uh, before that, I was uh, CISO at a advertising technology company. And then before that, a cloud security company. And then before that, which we'll delve into a little bit, I think in this conversation, I spent uh, 24 years in the military and retired as a colonel in 2012 from the U.S. Army. And um, and I probably described my uh, career in the Army was was pretty varied. It was everything from running around the battlefield with a radio on my back to managing multi-billion dollar programs um, for NORAD to uh, to uh, capstone assignments in what I would call enterprise cybersecurity and then cyber operations uh, at the Department of Defense and Department of Army level. And I think that we'll get into a little bit of those experiences in our conversation. So, Jeff, you've had you had a, a long career in in the Army, and we met shortly after you got out. I think you were working at an MSSP. I think we met in Texas somewhere. I don't remember how, but we shared a stage. How was that transitioning from military life to the civilian world, going from one mission uh, to a little bit different of a mission? What was that like, and did you have any help in that process? When you decide to leave the military, you really have two career paths that you can take. You can say, I'm going to continue to go to companies that support government work, or I want to do something completely different from government work. And the first path is very easy. And I'm I don't know why I'm not smart enough to pick the easy path, but I picked the hard path. And I actually chose to walk away from government service and companies that do government work. And, uh, and, and I was very, very fortunate in the first job that I had when I got out of the military. I, I, I came from essentially running the security and operations centers for the Department of Defense and the Department Army. Those were my last two jobs um, for an organization called JTFGNO, as well as Army Cyber Command. And so I was focused on the nation state threat actors and what they were doing against the Department of Defense. But then when you get into the civilian sector, it's a completely different threat profile. So I was very fortunate to get the best job that you could have to make that transition was I got to run a instant response practice for a managed security service provider. And what that allowed me to do was to, I, I always say it's like going from being on the playing field and, you know, and being in the middle of the, of the fight moving up to the press box and being able to see many companies going through their worst days and going through a data breach. And then it really allowed me to orient not only to the nation state threat actors that I was already familiar with in my department um, background, 
but then learn about the other threats to the civilian sector, the determined criminal gang that has some of the same level of nation state skills, as well as the commodity actors. So I think that was a great transition job for me. I did that for about two years after after retiring uh, in 2012. What do you think was the most difficult thing in that transition? I mean, you talked about the move to the press box, but what didn't you get about the civilian sector? Uh, what was the biggest sort of leadership surprise that you had? I think the biggest thing that I saw that was different in the civilian sector was just the lack of general knowledge and uh, emphasis on security. And I'm not talking about just cybersecurity. I mean, when you're a soldier and you grow up as a soldier, I mean, security operations, whether you're doing it in the physical world or, or in cyberspace, you know, a lot of the principles are the same. And everyone in the military spoke that language of security and understood that language of security. But then when I started doing consulting and, and I started having conversations with even some some of the industry security folks who were assigned to manage security for those companies, I was really surprised at just the basic lack of knowledge of understanding of what is security, what does it mean to be secure and how to run security operations. And that was the other thing that I saw was there was a big deficit of, of understanding of not just how to run security operations, but how to run an operational process. And um, and that really, I think, became something that I've taken with me to all the companies that I've worked with since I've retired from the military is to, is to help them understand how do you focus on operations and what does it mean to have operations? I want to spend a second on that. When we say that somebody has a security operations center or they're running security operations, you, you have, it, I believe, a set call it a playbook or a methodology around that, that seemingly others have missed. If you're introducing that concept, or if you're going in and expecting to see something that aligns with your expectation, what is that at a high level? What are the two or three points that you expect to see in operations? So in my very first job in cybersecurity, I had come from being the CIO of a pretty large organization inside the Army. And um, and I show up to the Department of Defense and and through a almost a luck and I somehow get put in charge of the Department of Defense's day to day operations of their security operations center. And what I learned, you know, the basic foundations I learned from ITIL and IT service management of incident management, problem management, change management, asset management, you know, those core principles the security folks hadn't really figured out how to how to operationalize their processes. And so the first thing I did was I asked someone, I said, what is the foundational doctrine that you run operations inside of security? And everybody goes, oh, it's that big, thick manual over there that no one reads. And it was 800-53. <laughs> right. Okay. So I read that. I said, okay, uh, you know, they just put me in charge of this. It's probably pretty important. I understand the foundational principles. And so I, really, I literally read that book cover to cover. It took a couple of days and I'm a slow and I'm dyslexic and a slow reader, but I read that book cover to cover. And I went back and I, I said, okay, show me the procedures that align to these foundational doctrinal processes. And it just didn't exist. There was a disconnect. And, and what's been great is since then, you know, uh, the NIST standards have, have evolved into the NIST cybersecurity framework, which kind of abstract a lot of those principles out of 800-53 into a framework that everybody can understand of, of identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. And it's really about putting all those activities into those swim lanes and knowing all those interactions between those swim, swim lanes. And that's how you conduct operations. You know, you don't just have a, I'm looking up at a, uh, at a board and I'm waiting for a red light to blink you know, a blinky red light, and then I'm going to go tell someone to do something. There's an operational framework and process that has to be tied to everything that you do. And the key piece that I noticed in security that seemed to be missing was the problem management. And it's like it's like security people, when they transition to, from IT to security, if they went that route, I mean, people come directly into security, is they forgot the whole problem management process. They're all about incident management. You know, they love they love in, doing forensics. They love getting deep into incidents, but they never take that step back 
and say, what could I have done? What can I do? They forget that, that final step in that, in the, uh, incident management process, which is lessons learned and, and applying those lessons learned and doing the gap assessment. What did I do to, to, or what can I do to remove this from these type of incidents from happening again? Well, I think, I think that that is a, you know, I was waiting for you to say, uh, after action report, but to get into, to add that mindset into incident response, I think strangely was helpful to me in my career, at least in, in a couple moments where for us, it was not only what we did, uh, how we identified and how we remediated, but ultimately to your point, what do we need to do to make sure this doesn't happen again? And also to address any gaps or failures along the way. And had I not done that specifically at my last post, it would have changed the direction of my, I dare I say, my career. And it's one of the pieces of advice I give upstart security teams that you can't just, you know, create these incident reports in this example and say, okay, here's the bad thing. Here's how we cleaned it up. But you need to think through and say, okay, what, what could have we have done better? Where were we blind? Where were we slow? Where were we ineffective? Where do we need future help? Right? So how does this affect maybe future budgeting decisions or future cooperation needed from other groups, whether that's money or, or just a, a seat at some other table? I think we screw that up consistently, collectively as a security team or security teams, plural, uh, as a community. So I, I completely agree. So how that operations, that diligence you're putting around it, what advice do you have? If there's a team right now that is like, look, I'm interested, I believe you, Jeff, what's one thing I can do tomorrow to start chipping away at this different approach? What's your step zero? Yeah, I, w- I would say put a focus on that recovery tower, the NIST cybersecurity framework, because a lot of times security people say, okay, recovery, IT people go fix this. Hmm. But there's actually a, some deliberate things that you as, an I, as a security team can do during that recovery phase. And for us, it's all about the uh, QA. You know, it's, it's, For me, the step one in the recovery phase is the QA of the incident. Did we do this correctly? Is this incident documented correctly? Am I using the right terms so I can do some trends and analysis? The second step is to do the trends and analysis as part of the recovery process in, in, in an iterative way across all of those. And then after you do the trends and analysis, I do the trends, and then, then you do the analysis. And then what you come out of the analysis should be gap statements that says, we're not doing this or we should be doing this. And it could be people, it could be processes, it could be technology, but you have to, to uh, capture those gaps. And then over time, you'll see those gaps, that those buckets of you know, of, of incidents, you know, you bucketize those incidents and, and, and they keep coming back to the same systemic gaps, then that becomes your data that you present to your leadership team that says, hey, if we make an investment here and we go buy this tool to automate this process, I can save, you know, we can prevent these type of incidents from happening again, or I can bring the mean time to closure rate down because I'm tracking those those metrics and I can prove it. So at the end of the day, it's, it's what you measure, how you measure it, and the quality control of how you measure it, and then bringing that to the gaps. Yeah, I could not agree more. And getting the, the especially the senior level security people to start thinking about that um, is one of the most valuable things I've personally dealt with or, or, or seen value from as a leadership change. But the other thing, and I want your opinion on this, the other challenge we had is when we started creating these observations in this sort of docket of problems, it was initially considered still an IT issue, meaning an IT-only sort of intra-IT issue. And it wasn't until we started getting it shared in the risk register uh, outside of IT for, for the bigger level, for the high-level stuff. Have you encountered that or how do you avoid that where they say, okay, we've got a visibility issue here and they say, we'll fix it. And it's like, well, the visibility issue is with an application owned in a different area. And, you know, as a, as a, as an example, and I need cooperation, I need business buy-in, I need, I need these risks, these issues, these gaps, these findings owned someplace else. How do you work on, it's a, it's a different issue, but how do you prevent that type of tar pit from occurring? So I, I like to refer to this as a human terrain problem, and it really comes down to relationships. And I think that what I've seen with a lot of CISOs, and, I, and I've thought about this as, as my retirement hitch, 
is to become a, a marriage counselor for CISOs and their CIOs, CISOs and their audit teams, and CISOs and, and all the stakeholders that they support. Because you, you know, I, I hear CISOs say, I'll never work for the CIO. And I hear CISOs say, oh, I hate the audit team. And I, I just think that those are, are the wrong, that's a wrong-headed approach because those are all people that can help you to close your security gaps that you have. And if you have the right relationship with them, they, they can be folks that are your, your biggest proponents to, to uh, get meaningful change across the organization because they're very powerful people that, that you definitely don't want to be in on the wrong side of. And so I think that's the crit where I see a lot of critical misses is is not having that relationship. That doesn't mean that you you know you have to be buddies and you go out, but you you definitely have to understand how your processes and what they're trying to achieve intersect with what you're trying to achieve, and then build that Venn diagrams like, hey, we have common interests to do this. And um, and always when people ask me. Who I work for, I always tell them I work for the shareholders of Teleperformance. That's what <laughs> right, right. And and I have stakeholders. Um, like technically, I don't work for the CIO, but I am the CIO's shadow. I mean, every he invites me to every single meeting that he has. He asks my advice. I ask for his advice. I make sure I'm aligned with him. And uh, same with the audit team, the folks who lead our audit um, program. Who uh, a lot of CISOs will say, "Hey, these are the guys who are making me look bad." Well, they're also the people that can point out where people aren't aligning to your strategy and to your into your policies and and to and to make sure that they're getting to the right data and interpreting the data right because that that goes right up to the audit committee and um, and those are the people that are making investment decisions. So I, I think that that's where I see a lot of the critical misses. Okay, uh, marriage counselor Jeff. So, what if you were giving that advice to, let's say, the chief risk officer or uh, someone of that ilk outside of IT. It's my contention that something like a a great response or analytics or a SOC type group is a great source for part of the observable failures, real failures of an organization, assuming they're doing their job correctly. That That is a great place to begin to build your book of work for future audits. I actually believe that things like adversary simulation and the failures along with that are also a great builder of those same lists. If you would, if you were sitting down with a non-technical, again, let's use, let's arbitrarily say chief risk officer, could be chief privacy officer as well. How do you warm them up to the idea of using the SOC as a source of knowledge to build this sort of gap list? How do you how would you introduce that idea and how would you go about that? I agree with the relationship piece you mentioned earlier, but how do you articulate or, or do you think it's even valuable? Let me put it back to you. Well, when you, when you look at someone who holistically owns risk across an organization, they have many different risk buckets that they have to manage. And I think where the challenge is, is there's no normalization of that data between those risk buckets. So whether doing financial risk, um, environmental compliance risk, cybersecurity risk, or infosec risk is how we call it in ours, in our uh, environment, contractual risk. You know, they, they have all these things are in these different risk registers. But I think where the challenge is, and I, I'm, uh, this is something I'm putting some thought into, and I'm trying to figure out how do we do this, is how do you normalize the data across those, those risk buckets so that it goes through some kind of filter and lens, so that when it goes to the audit committee and to the uh, into the company, you know, the company leadership that looks at where we make investment decisions, the right things bubble up. And so, to answer, I, I kind of went the back door into answering your question. But to answer your question, is our data that comes out of our security operations center has got to be trans, has got to be translated into a risk statement and, and uh, with mitigation and treatment measures that, that make sense to, to that risk officer. Yeah. And then the gaps of what we need to do and then tying it to the investment is, is what you got to clearly communicate. And I think that, uh, that that's a work in progress for, for me. And I think it's a work in progress for all of us. Well stated. I have had, so for example, in my, in my life of 
kind of on was on the other side for my entire career where I would have internal audit come to me and they would say, well, these six Unix servers have a setting, a configuration that's um, that's risky. These internal servers, and uh, we are looking at this, you know, writable file configuration kind of thing. And I'll say, well, that's yeah, that's that needs to be fixed. But I think that there's other things like, hey, you don't have multi-factor authentication on Internet exposed systems, and the reason why we don't is somebody won't pay for it. And so I've already said that this is a risk. And this is an example. It's a real one, actually. But you have something that becomes a finding like these six Unix boxes internally, which are still an issue, needs a configuration change. But they will weigh that and base someone's bonus on that success or failure when omitting something as as, as bad as, in this example, a real one of this multi-factor or lack thereof of an internet-exposed remote access system. and so. We find ourselves, and this is a, a global issue, uh, I see this frequently, the same type of thing over and over and over again, where the focus wasn't set of internal audit or risk ahead of time. And I think there's a, a missing bit of education in the, the gravity of these kinds of issues. Your statement is spot on, which we need to normalize because risk isn't risk isn't risk. There's six, seven, eight different buckets that a, that a chief risk officer has to look into. But for our bucket, for Jeff's bucket, for Steve's bucket, the security bucket, we need a way to to weigh that out. What advice do you have? I mean, let me put it back to you. Have you ever had internal audit come to you with something foolish like that? Well, I may have some of my former internal audit friends listening, so I, I will I will say that I've I you know in in a previous company when I got to the company, the audit team was focused on a lot of what I would call very measurable metrics that were were not in the right context. And, and, and through developing a relationship with the audit team and, and sitting, sitting down and taking the time to educate them on risk. And, and for me, it's, it's real, it's real simple messaging to, that really helps the, the non-technical person understand what, what it is you're trying to achieve. And so usually when I come into a new company, the first thing I tell when people ask me, what are we going to do? You know, what's your what's your strategy to protect us against the cyber attack? You know, well, strategy is a very technical term for us military people. It's about ends, ways and means. You know, what 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 end state are you trying to get? Um, What's the way what's the path of the way that you're going to get there? And then what are the resources you have to fund that way to get to those ends? And so I usually start with very simple messaging, you know, I want to prevent rogue access to our environment. And I I want to protect our email to ensure that that's not a vector for folks to get into, uh, into our environment. And then the second critical thing is I I want to uh, protect elevated privileges. I still have an open challenge for someone and maybe in this podcast, which is widely listened Name me one major data breach that didn't involve someone losing control of their elevated privileges. And elevated privileges are so easy to protect these days. And, and so is remote access. And yet people are still, as you alluded to, are counting servers that aren't patched, that aren't never see the light of day. They're deep into your, into your uh, application stack that, okay, I can only patch these four times a year because there's... Configure, you know, there's there's configuration issues with patching more than that. Yep. But then they'll say, oh, it's okay that you know that uh, that these executives log in without using multi-factor authentication because it's too much trouble for them to look at their phone and, and push approve <laughs> authenticator app. Right. So so it's really making those basic statements in a language that the risk off that the risk stakeholders and I'll just call them stakeholders understand and then and then help and then partner with them saying hey here are the things you should go look at and and from my experience even from the company where when I got there the the relationship between the security team and the and the audit team was probably not where it should be by the time we left we were we were partners and it really is. I think once you once you put your shield down and your spear down, then a lot of times your adversary will put their shield and, sp- and spear down, 
and then you can have some meaningful conversations. So it really gets into into that what I call the human terrain management between those those stakeholders that you meet in order to get your get your program done. I want to go back to a statement you made. If you're not taking something like the credential management seriously, uh, what is your take on? Let's say there's a political reason or an educational reason why someone decides not to protect the credential. Talk to me a little bit about this. Is a tactical question, but tell me about the stress that that puts on the defender. If if there's an environment that allows for that compromise to occur, share with us your perspective on the stress that that puts on the defender at a tactical level, at a, at a technical level, at, at the defender, the frontline person. Well, I mean, I, I'll I'll bring it to a. A, uh, a physical terrain scenario to kind of help illustrate the point. Imagine I've, you know, I, I, I'm a big, I'm a big uh, zombie movies genre person. And so uh, I'm, I'm always all about the, you know, the zombie defense and, and, uh, and, you know, uh, we, we sit in our neighborhood and we'll have a few drinks and we'll talk about how we defend the neighborhood from zombies. Sure. And, and, uh, you know, can you imagine, you know, okay, I've, I've got a house, I've got an eight foot fence around my house and, and I've got great security, but then, you know, Hey, my daughter decides that hey, she wants to go see her friend lives across the neighborhood. So she leaves her back door, door unlocked as she goes out to, uh, to go visit her friends and doesn't follow the path of where I want her to go to stay away from the zombies. You know, that's the kind of pressure that you get, no matter how good your security program and strategy is that at the tactical implementation level, if if not everyone's aligned, and most of the pushback that I get for some things like protecting credentials is, oh, it's so much trouble. I have to log in a second time using a different factor and it's just it's just so much trouble. But that is exactly what keeps the determined threat out. And it's, you know, there's you no know, uh there's not even a single ransomware. All the major ransomware events that are happening now all can be tied back to these ransomware actors aren't just sending um, ransomware to your email and promulgating through through the through your network because we figured out how to stop that. They're coming in like nation state actors and they're get they're basically getting active directory level credentials and then living off the land and then using your internal software distribution processes and GPOs to send their malware out. <laughs> right. And that's that's the stress you put us under because it only takes one person not to manage their credentials and, and your no matter how good your strategy is, that one shot is gonna is gonna kill the organization. Well, and now the defender is left with trying to identify is this really Jeff or is this Jeff zombie? Exactly. Or you let the zombies in the back gate and they overflow your house, and that's that's kind of the scenario in the in the mental model of what a very determined ransomware event is. So, well, first off, I, I'm a big zombie fan, zombie movie fan as well. Uh, man, there's been some, and even bad zombie films. There's been some actually some international uh, films that have come out. I think out of Korea, maybe uh, that's that are on. Uh, I think Netflix or, or Amazon of late that are pretty good. Is it Train to Busan? Have you seen that yet? I have not. Yeah, it's subtitled, but uh, you'll get the point pretty quickly. Uh, it's pretty good. It, it's it's not you know it, it's not twenty eight days later, but it's pretty good. Here's a great analogy. If you if you ever saw saw Shaun of the Dead, yeah, for like two days in that zombie apocalypse, the main characters were so self absorbed they didn't even realize a zombie apocalypse was happening. That's a that's a perfect mental image of the way some corporate people are when it comes to cybersecurity. You know not a focus and it's not, I mean, I'm very fortunate teleperformance. They already had a program in place when I got here that it came from directly from our CEO that cybersecurity is, is in our top five priorities. Man, you've had some great quotes already. That's a, that's a, I've met some security teams that way that, you know, I'll, I'll start talking about certain themes like we're discussing now and some others when you just get blank stares and, um, and I really feel for them because it's like, look, this is, this is your trade craft. This is your career. You know, we, it's, it's one thing if executives don't understand this, maybe I'll give them a half of a pass, but the defender, you've got to be able to have the capabilities around this to either, you know, prevent, detect, disrupt and respond. Right. I mean, that's a, you got to have that. I could spend all day on this, but there's, a, I've got a, other things I want to cover with you and, and we're ultimately going to get into ends, ways and means. Cause I think that's a good 
strategy development mindset. But before we get there, uh, you've been doing uh, a tremendous amount of work in the cloud, shifting to the cloud. And I think that is also another area that there's a bit of a deficit. Uh, I talk to a lot of folks, uh, of course, and both from a strategy perspective and from a skill perspective, just a talent perspective, there's, there's gaps there. So the first area I want to talk about, if you're cool with it, is just this general concept. Can you have a better environment in the cloud in general? And how does better software play? Is this is, are the extremes better or worse there? So talk, let's chat a bit there, uh, about that, if you would. So I got, you know, I am a retired Army colonel, and I can't do any interviews or discussions without telling at least one war story. It's, it's, it's mandated by law. So I'm going to tell the war story of how I became the Department of Defense's cloud security expert. Okay. When I was in Army Cyber Command and I was the uh, chief of current ops there, I got this cold call from this company that says, we're doing a cybersecurity symposium. Would you like to send someone on cloud on cloud security? And I was like, wow, clouds. I think I kind of know what cloud is and it sounds interesting. But uh, at the time, they were asking for 1400 bucks, which on a government uh, uh, budget you know, that I'm managing personally was a lot of money. But I thought, well, this is meaningful enough. So I went to uh, one of our uh, one of our sharpest architects, security architects, you know, in Army Cyber Command, and I said, "Hey, I won't use his name. I don't want people to reverse engineer who it is, but he's really super sharp, sharp guy, still serving in in uh, government." And, and uh, I said, "Hey, can you uh, do you want to go to this cloud security conference? It's here local in DC." And 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 he said, "Yeah, sure, that'd be great. And I'll go learn something." So then, about three weeks later, I get an email from. From one, I had like three generals that I really was accountable to when I was uh, in that last role in the military. And one of the generals sent me an email and she said, uh, hey, Jeff, I've got this this uh, this uh, speaking event request to do to talk about cloud security. Do you think you could handle this for me? You know, my schedule doesn't work out. I, I won't be in town. So can you do this for me? I was like, oh, yes, ma'am. Absolutely. I was like, dang it, I should have, I should have uh, volunteered to go to that cloud security uh, thing that I was going to send our, our other employee to. And so I, so I went to the internet, I did some, did some research, and, you know, where's the first place you go? Even back then in 2011, I went to Google and, or to, to Wikipedia. I said, you know, what is cloud? <laughs> and, and so I, I built up my uh, briefing, but I'll tell, I'll tell you what I learned, but I built up my briefing and I show up to the day of the event and I walk in and the first person I see is that employee that I was talking about and he's sitting in the audience. And I go up to him and I say, hey, uh, I'll just use the name John. John, what, 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 are you, uh, what are you doing here? He goes, oh, this is that cloud security conference you asked me to attend a few weeks ago. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. And he says, uh, I said, anybody interesting speaking is, yeah, they have the Department of Defense's expert on uh, cloud security speaking today. I was like, cool. When's he speaking? <laughs> uh, maybe I can I can watch him speak as well. And he showed me the program and it was me that they had a build as the uh, government of the uh, of the Department of Defense's cloud security expert. Yes. And uh, but I'll tell you what I learned in when I was setting up for that speaking event is that cloud is really for four simple resources. It's CPU, it's memory, it's storage, and then it's the network fabric that connects those resources and creates this virtual environment that are these servers. These servers aren't real. They're just resource allocations in these four resource buckets. And as I understood that, I started building this mental model. I was like, holy crap, this will be so much easier to uh, to protect against because I'm no longer counting on someone going through a data center and ensuring that every wire is connected right in all the server racks or that someone has the right um, networking settings and all these physical devices that are throughout the uh, data center. This is all abstracted into software. And, and now I can just you know build all these rules in and manage all these rules with software instead of having to go and touch a bunch of things. And, right. so, and, and then you can actually build a defendable architecture because you're orchestrating that all with software, which is so much easier to design. 
back in 2011, that pitcher wasn't there. And I think that the companies <laughs> have come a long way. Well, what other lesson? I mean, I think there's some other lessons in, so the story's great, but I, I think there's some other maybe career lessons in there. You know, you wouldn't have said no to the general in any capacity. I mean, w- would there have been, let me put it this way, because I don't want to speak for you. Would there have been a case if a general, you know, brigadier on up asks, hey, I, uh, <laughs> you know, Colonel, would you like to go to this event or would you speak for on RBF? Is there ever a case when you'd say no? Oh, absolutely not. Okay. It, it was a pleasure to be able to get out and engage. I, I actually learned more from one of my favorite parts of speaking events is the Q&A because I probably learn more from the Q&A than I impart on the audience. So I, I absolutely love taking advantage of those speaking events. Well, so, so let's put that into today's world for those listening that may get a similar scenario, but maybe not in the military, right? Somebody reaches out or somebody asks, I mean, is there a life lesson there? Is there ever a case when you should say no if you have a speaking opportunity? Not everybody feels comfortable speaking in front of crowds. And I'll be the first to admit that this is, was a learned behavior for me. Um, I was not good at it early on in my career. And it's definitely a key talent that you need to be a more senior officer in the military. So I actually went and taught ROTC for two years where I spent four hours a day teaching ROTC to kids. And that, and, and you know, there really is something to that thousand hours of becoming an expert in anything, although I'm not an expert because I haven't got my 10,000 hours. I think it's 10,000 hours. 10,000. Yeah, not that. Yeah, I wish it were a thousand. I'm probably more along the lines of a thousand hours. So I'm, I'm probably past the Padawan, but not quite a Jedi. But uh, I think that that it is it is something if you're comfortable, you absolutely ought to take advantage of it. And, and the best part, like I say, always make sure that you say time at the end of your speaking events for Q&A, because I think that is the for me, that's the most valuable part and part I love the most. In fact, when I was teaching ROTC, sometimes um, when I felt like the, uh, the the students weren't engaged, I would do 10 questions. And I would say, you guys, uh, we're not going to do a lesson today. I want you to ask me 10 questions about the Army, the military, or government. And then that's what we're going to base our, our conversation off of. <laughs> I like that. That's uh, I, I think it's a good method. Uh, I think a lot of executive leaders should spend some time out with their staff. In fact, that's one of the things not the question thing, but where I suggest that CISOs go out and meet their frontline uh, analysts. And one of the questions I, I always want them to ask may not be the most comfortable, but what's the worst part of your job? The executive asking the frontline person, but I think the inversion of that is just as good. Yeah, I think we, we were kind of trained on that in the military to walk the, you know, walk the gun lines is kind of the, the, uh, um, colloquialism that we use to uh to say go go out and check the troops and see see what's see what's not going right at the bottom you know you, you go two levels down and you see what's not what's happening two levels below you that you might have the ability to fix i want to go back to cloud so you painted a picture that was pretty rosy and i agree fundamentally with what you said that if you don't have to go walk the data center if you can define and check and correct via software uh, there's a lot of efficiency gains with that and a lot less overhead that you have to worry about. But what about making sure that it stays that way? We're still seeing uh, cloud breaches. In fact, those are even just misconfigurations that allow for exposure of information. What's your take on that? Why are we seeing these sort of gaps and these problems uh, in the cloud for many organizations? What What's the cause of that? So, you know, we used to always hear that people only use 10% of the capability of Microsoft Office productivity tools. I would say the same rule applies for people operating in the cloud. A lot of people just forklift their traditional data center workloads into the cloud without really into the public cloud without really understanding what they could gain in in the features that are available in the cloud because the, there's just a huge talent gap in understanding what are all those feature sets that you have whether you're in AWS, Azure, or, or GPC. And, and that's where I see is, is the big, you know, is, is knowing how to leverage automation and have a true DevOps approach. We've kind of, the other shift that you see is the IT service management folks have kind of taken a back seat to the developers and the developers have created this concept that they call DevOps. 
but developers really don't understand DevOps. And they're starting to emerge to understand how they can automate a lot of those operational processes. But they're, they're that group of true Jedis that are out there is a very, very small population. And if you got the wrong people in those roles that don't understand it, then they can really cause a cloud security program to go sideways. So a lot of so I think I'm I'm hearing you start to elude that a lot of the security beyond configuration, beyond definition in sort of config and code, is this relationship with a developer and this union of DevOps, development, and security. What is this automation that they're working on? What is your security needs or in general? How do you what's the unification of that? How do you get in that? What's what's your advice? for the CISO or the security leader that's struggling here? Well, I think the first thing you want to do is you want to outline what is that continuous integration, continuous deployment program in your DevOps program? Because those are the two major functions that happen in DevOps. Continuous integration, just think of that as the back end of preparing the environment for deployment and production. And that's the planning phase, the coding phase, the build, and the test. And what you can do in those four major portions of the continuous integration process is inject your security requirements along the way and where possible, convert your codes, your your standards to code. Like in the security architecture, you know, uh, if you have a standard hardened build that you want your developers to use in the cloud, then you can dictate all the Amazon, you know, if you're in Amazon, AWS, all your AMIs, all your Amazon machine images will have these lockdowns inherent. And this, this is the only place your automation can pull these, these, uh, these images from. And, you know, it's just controls like that. In, in AWS speak, they call them security guardrails, but you really can automate a lot of those, those security requirements into that continuous integration process. And then when you get to continuous deployment, it's really, you know, I, I, I was telling our last company, our last, my last company, which was an advertising technology company, was a very, very product heavy company. We had well, well over 300 products that we had created for all of our clients. And I used to tell the head engineer, I said, if you can ever get to where you do nothing but deploy a mutable infrastructure, meaning when you get to the deployment phase, you're, 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 your production environment, no one ever logs into it and fixes it. If you have a problem in, in deployment, you fix that in the integration and the testing, you test your fix, then you rip down your uh, your production environment, and then you replace it with the fix that you just made from your test environment. I'll tell them, you guys won't need me anymore because security is fixed because no one is touching the production environment unless it's in your test environment. And you know, my job would be focused on making sure your test environment is is protected and you have all those security guardrails, but you can automate a lot of that out of the way and, and make yourself a, a harder target. And the other cool thing about this, you know, when you get to that true DevOps met, met methodology where you're continuously replacing your production environment, say you get on a two-week sprint cycle, which is awesome. If, you know, there are a few companies that can do that, but not many is think about persistence that a threat has, you know, that, that is the, that is the one thing that, uh, that the, the threat is always looking to persist in an environment. Right. But if you're continuously tearing down that environment and replacing it, even if they're lucky enough to get a foothold every two weeks is not enough for a determined threat to do what it is they want to do in, in a production environment. So. I think this is a point that a question I had for you and you, you've already kind of jumped into it, which is good that how does adversary behavior change in the cloud? And you, you referenced persistence cycle. So specifically, if you're looking at any modern breach, you know, earlier you said, name me a breach that didn't involve stolen credentials or, or credential elevation. But I think the same thing holds true as you'll have with this sort of persistence is, is kind of the name of the game and longstanding persistence in an environment. So your contention is, um, if you're in a rapidly changing, healthy environment, meaning if we're we're fixing downstream and we're promoting to prod, that the likelihood of persistence uh, is driven down. I think there's one exception to that, and that is if credentials are already stolen somehow or keys, which is a different issue. But I think that your your statement on persistence is is spot on. How do you feel about the credential side? Is it still an issue, or is it less of an issue 
when you're sort of refreshing the environment in the same way? Well, I mean, as long, if, if you deploy a movable environment, then if you see anybody log into that environment, then that ought to be, you know, red red lights going off in the sock, you know, uh, <laughs> battle stations, because right. you know that no one should be logging into to uh, um, into the production environment. Now, you know, service accounts is still an issue, and that's that is probably where there's still a vector and a hole to think about with the threat. Because all these applications all have to log into other applications, and you have APIs, and and then making sure that all that is, uh, you know, it's not as easy as as I portray it. Because there's a lot of security requirements there. And the other thing that I've saw in the last couple of years is that the uh, the threat actors are attacking the continuous integration, the CI and the CD part, and are actually getting into the uh, development environments and getting the source code. And, and then sometimes just holding the source code for, for ransom or examining that source code, looking for those keys that they can use to, uh, to, to get connected to the production environment. So, so absolutely, there's still some issues. So do you think, is it your opinion that the development staff, the humans, the individual names, those people are being maybe targeted more aggressively for that reason in some cases? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, LinkedIn is the uh, is the persistent threats uh, goldmine of uh, of of, uh, of harvesting who who you should target and, and who you should build that uh, that spear phishing email. I don't, I don't even think spear phishing is. I think we should call, start calling them laser pointer emails <laughs> because they can uh, they you know a persistent threat can really figure out who are the right people to target. And to get those accesses that they need into those development environments, if you don't protect them appropriately, and that's what you see a lot of. I mean, I used to see this a lot. It's like, oh, well, this is a development environment; it doesn't need to be the same levels and standards. And I keep bringing them back to the to the uh, list of incidents where development environments are compromised, and then and then sometimes the uh, the the uh, actors actually inject their code into the source code. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's a uh, you got you got to think about the whole you know protecting the whole CI/CD process because any weakness in any of that chain will will make the output compromised in my opinion. So is it your contention that the downstream problem uh, of security is maybe elevated, uh, more important to pay attention to not only for good sort of methodology of fix but also just in general security that the the shift to the cloud makes us to, should make us pay more attention to that lower environment treat it more like prod from a controls perspective is that your contention for this reason yeah and, and there's absolutely no reason why i think that a lot of product development and software development teams don't do it because they just don't think it's important and it's really not that hard to build your prod environment in my opinion with the same controls that you have for your for your production and you know especially when you're talking in the cloud and you're talking about software and orchestrating software settings you know you, you know it's just i think it's just getting that mindset and that organizational discipline to do it is where the lack where's lacking i've got just a handful of questions for you here we're getting kind of it at the the top of the hour um but for the defender for the guys and gals in the sock with this cloud lens what are a couple of things that they need to be doing differently or what's maybe a tip that you have that they should focus on if they're not already? So this is a shift. We talked about development regions. We talked about, you know, uh, the refresh of the environment, fixing downstream from a detection standpoint or response. Uh, what are one or two tips there you have um, that, that come to mind? Well, I think the biggest difference is on the response side. Doing incident response and forensics in the cloud is much different from doing it in a traditional data center and production environment. Um, used to be, you know, we would try to figure out how many serve. We would go through that uh, host analysis, malware, malware analysis, host, ana host analysis, malware analysis, network analysis to identify all the infected machines. And then you would quarantine those machines and then you would go and do forensics on every single one of those machines. In the cloud, you don't really necessarily in my opinion, need to do that because the you're going to find, because it's an automated process, you're going to find whatever flaw, you probably just need to examine one or two machines to verify your results. And, and then you go back and you fix that in production, and then you go back in and then you go back through the, uh, or you go back and fix that in test, 
and then go back and, and deploy that into into production. So the the mindset of, of the response and containment is a different strategy, I think. You know, when you get to the containment and eradication, because you eradicate it by fixing it in test and then pushing it to prod. And that now you know that that whatever changes that you made, if you're using Chef or Puppet or whatever your your uh, your automation tools are, you're using to to build out your environment. If you make those changes there, then you know that's going to change all the infected hosts that you have. So you don't have to go back and and say I got a thousand infected servers. It doesn't matter in the cloud because as long as you know the root cause and you have the root same root cause, when you regenerate that that environment, then you're going to fix all of those at the same time. I would add just checks related to breakout, making sure there wasn't any, whether it's by credential or key or anything else to say, okay, is there a, a method to sort of check breakout and sort of timeline associated with that? So the creation as a tool, as a defender, as a responder, absolutely though, I think that's great advice. I, I've got one more, one more question for you and we ask it to every guest. Pursuant to the name of the show, uh, the new CISO, you've covered a lot of it today already, but what is being a new CISO mean to you, Jeff? I have a policy that I learned very young as a lieutenant. In fact, my first boss told me, my first major that was my boss told me this, is you always need to have a no jackass policy. And I think that this goes back to, and that means you don't work with jackasses and you don't, you don't promote jackasses and you don't have jackasses and you're not a jackass yourself. And I think that, that this kind of maps back to the relationships internal to corporate environments in that uh, in that the new CISO needs to needs to nurture those relationships. And if you have an adversarial relationship inside of your organization that you can't seem to fix, then then uh, then I've got a consulting practice for you maybe in about 10 years when I'm ready to retire to uh, to walk you through that process, because I think that that's where the need the new CISO state of mind needs to be is you got to develop these these human connections inside of your organization, outside of your organization to ensure that uh, that your strategy can be implemented and executed. I appreciate your major's ideas uh, and I appreciate your thoughts today. Jeff, you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this opportunity. I uh, hope to be a frequent visitor in the future. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first. 